Hello and welcome to the TBG Real Estate Podcast, where we connect you with some of the most innovative and exciting real estate leaders today. We will show you that there are numerous paths to a successful career in the real estate industry, and that some of your greatest missteps can be turned into your greatest triumphs. Without further ado, here's the head of TBG Real Estate, Chris Popper. All right, folks, welcome to this episode of the TBG Real Estate Podcast. I am your host, Chris Papa. And today we have a very special guest, Mr. Michael Cook. Michael is the partner at the Settled Nomad Group. How are you, Michael? I'm good, Chris. How are you? I'm good, man. It's good to see you here. Yeah, I mean, honestly, you know, when you say it's good to see people, it's it, it has a very different meaning now because yeah. <laughs> you're always seeing them virtual. So it's uh, it's it's good to see people. <laughs> no, it's good to see you, man. But we've known each other for a long time now, and it's glad to uh, you know we're still kicking here, still going and doing our thing, huh? So no, yeah, 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 yeah. it's been a, it's been a long and and, and wild ride, lots <laughs> ups and downs. It's been good. So you are in Dallas, correct? I am. I am in Dallas. I am. Uh, I am in North Dallas, actually. To be more specific. How is Dallas? You like it down there? So, you know, it's very family friendly. It's it's a place where uh, you can uh, have literally everything you can possibly imagine for your family. So, uh, all kinds of childcare, great schools, uh, all that stuff. Um, but I think coming from New York or even to San Francisco. Uh, it is missing a little bit of the sort of the hustle and bustle of uh, of, of, of the big city. Yeah. So uh, good for families, but uh, if you're young, I'd probably stick with New York or San Francisco. I'm not young anymore, Michael. <laughs> I was at some point. <laughs> well, maybe if you're old too, though, because right? you know if you're old, yeah. <laughs> then you don't really need the family friendly as much either. So maybe I, know. I miss having like a yard or something though. So maybe I, I've actually thought my whole family's down in Houston. I grew up in New Jersey, but my family's in Houston, so I go down to Texas a lot. And I'm like, man, it's it seems kind of nice. Um, so you are now the Settled Nomad Group, which is uh, can you tell us a little about what you're doing lately? Yeah, so um, uh, during this pandemic, uh, I thought it would be, and it's very risky, but I thought it'd be a really good opportunity to uh, start my own SFR fund. Um, I have been, uh, and I'm sure you know this, but for the listeners, I have been in the single family rental space pretty much since it started. Uh, In 2011, um, GTIS Partners, where I was working, I uh, had started really researching uh, the SFR sort of space, uh, and we officially made our first investment in 2012, uh, and I've been managing that ever since. And so uh, sort of fast forward uh, to today, and we're at a really unique point in, I think, the cycle of real estate. I think uh, we've seen a lot of uh, ups and downs in the economy, but we really haven't seen that reverberate at all. Uh, yet in the the greater real estate on 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 the multifamily and and on the uh, single family side, I think we've certainly seen some stuff on the commercial side. Uh, and so I thought, well, you know, the last time we were sort of in this place, the Great Recession, uh, SFR was a, a really good safe haven. Uh, and so I thought that there would be more interest in SFR. So uh, I figured this is the best time, if any, to sort of start uh, my own thing. Uh, and I think I've sort of built i've built two sfr companies now uh and so uh the third one i'm going to be building for me yeah that's great i mean you are the sfr guy i mean i remember when you were at gtis and you guys were i heard about you guys investing in single families houses and like what is this stuff like no one no one was doing that 
Um, and I'm sure that turned someone into like street lane homes at some point. Right. And then, yeah. so I guess like we can dig it a little deeper for those who don't really know a lot about SFR. Can you give us kind of the general, you don't have to dig in too deep, but it's kind of, how did it start? What does it, what does it look like now? As far as like the, it used to be just like, yeah, a couple, I mean, it still, used to be just like more mom and pops just owning a couple of houses, renting them out. Right. I mean, it still is, right? I mean, SFR at this point is only maybe 3% institution at, at best. So, I mean, 97% of folks are still, it's still doctors and lawyers or people who get relocated and decide they want to rent their house out. And so they rent their house uh, and that's single family for rent. Uh, and so the um, challenge of doing it on a larger scale is it looks and feels a lot like multifamily except you've got a whole bunch of operational and logistical challenges as it relates to sort of getting maintenance done, getting rents and showings and those sorts of things. Um, but basically, yeah, single family home rental uh, on, on an institutional level is taking what folks have been doing for years with one or two or 10 homes and doing it for thousands. And that just really happened because of the great recession. There was just a bunch of, a lot of, a lot of empty houses sitting out there. No one could buy them. Well, yeah. So, you know, the funny thing is during the Great Recession, I don't think people really approached this as a new space. I think people thought, well, housing prices are really cheap. Um, they're, you know, 40 to 60 percent off of their historical uh, highs. Uh, we can just buy them and wait. And then when they get back up to 60 percent, we'll sell them in bulk and we'll make money. And that's it. And well, if we're holding them, we might as well rent them. And so then all of a sudden, people started realizing that when you're renting these things, you can get significant cash flow. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, um, and on top of that, multifamily was super expensive. Uh, and so uh, you're getting sort of multifamily-like cash flow with, uh, with much, much cheaper initial investments. Uh, and the only thing you have to figure out is how to operate it. And so sort of the evolution of the space was sort of 2012, people were buying a whole bunch of assets really as much as they could, not even thinking about operations. <laughs> uh, and then sort of 2013, 14, 15, people started to think, hey, there's a lot of cash flow that's coming off these things. How do I operate this more efficiently? Uh, and then on top of that, real estate technology became a thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you had all different types of real estate technology. So self-showings uh, was becoming a thing. Um, you had folks like... Um, Task easy who were doing lawnmowers. And so all of a sudden you had this confluence of two things coming together. You had this very operationally intensive thing that needed technology to reduce people. You had this uh, real estate technology space that was uh, growing rapidly. And so sort of together um, you saw a huge growth in uh, sort of this industry and it became something that was more sustainable. Because I think uh, when you looked at sort of how people were operating in 2011 and 12, I mean, there's no way it was sustainable. I mean, we were buying homes with Excel spreadsheets and uh, trying to, you know, figure <laughs> out how this stuff works. And now, you know, there's algorithms that calculate sort of, uh, it, that literally comb the entire MLS every hour, right? Uh, so that you don't miss uh, a potential buying opportunity. Uh, you know, we had, when we first started, we probably had eight different third party property managers uh, trying to sort of help us manage in all these different markets. Now, of course, everybody has their own property management companies. Mm. Uh, and so the evolution has been really, really quick uh, when you sort of look at historical, uh, other historical things, like some multifamily in the 90s. Uh, the evolution of single family has been fairly quick. 
And now uh, it's in a place where I think uh, it is really sort of a, a solid and strong institutional asset class. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, there's some big, really big players out there, a lot of big money out there involved in this. Where, I mean, what is happening now in that space? I have, I have not been involved personally, like involved with that space for a little while. Are there, there's still a lot of homes to be, to be purchased. Is it consolidating? Is it buying from these mom and pops? Or they, is it buying, renting out, buying newly built houses now? What are the, what are the different varieties? Yeah. So um, I think that when you look at this space in general, uh, there has definitely been some consolidation. I think that uh, in the beginning when it first started, everyone was trying to get into it. And so I think you had people taking different strategies. You had people taking different geographic areas. Um, You had people investing a lot in operations, investing a lot in technology. And I think that that's sort of all winnowed down now. And so you sort of got the the winners. So you've got the invitation homes, you've got the progress, you've got American Homes for Rent, Tricon, uh, some of those larger folks, Main Street Renewal, um, that have really been able to capture an outsized portion of the investor dollar. So today, um, I think when most uh, sort of large pension funds think about where they're going to put their money in SFR, they're choosing those sort of larger mm-hmm. firms. And then you have this sort of, and those are all firms that I would say, you know, easily, you know, 20,000 homes or more. Uh, they have the buying capacity to buy anywhere from, you know, several hundred to a thousand homes a month if they want to. Um, more recently, you've also started to see uh, build for rent become a thing. Um, you know, honestly, it's been a thing for probably three years, but it's become much more of a thing. Uh, and I think that you're seeing folks really try to figure out every possible way that they can get their operations um, uh, to be easier. Uh, and build for rent, I think when people finally actually did the math of, yeah, I'm paying a small premium for this new house, but I do so many, so many, so much less in repairs and other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. And so, you know, you have folks that have really uh, just started buying build to rent communities. I, I think sort of early on, I think people were cautious uh, that rental was going to have some kind of a stigma. But I think uh, with the institutionalization of the space in general, and more people renting, really preferring to rent, uh, that hasn't been the case. And so you're seeing a lot more. Uh, you're seeing builders. You're seeing builders do it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> actually, uh, you know, there's a. There, you mentioned Houston. There's a large builder in Houston, Camelo uh, Homes. I mean, they, they've got a, a huge. Uh, they, they probably have four or five thousand uh, homes themselves. Uh, and then you have folks that are going even further. I mean, American Homes for Rent, for example. Uh, they are buying land now and they have built their own sort of home building company. Oh, wow. um, because ultimately, not only do they need to sort of build the homes, but they're building homes that are really designed for renters. Uh, and so there, there's a lot of little elements that probably too detailed to get into here, but there's a lot of little elements you can do that make it easier to sort of manage, especially like this, a subdivision of homes. Yeah. So um, I think it just it's going to continue that way. And I think the, the one thing we haven't seen in SFR yet is really folks playing on the lower side. I think, you know, most people play in that sort of one hundred and fifty to $300,000 space. Mm-hmm. Uh, there still is a lot of room for folks to, uh, A, either focus on sort of subsidized housing or B, uh, in that sort of 150000 and below, uh, sort of the, you know, think of it as like C-class multifamily, yeah. right? Um, like there's a lot of A-class multifamily, but there's also... B, C, and, and even D-class multifamily. And I think in SFR, we definitely have A and B, but we really don't have that sort of B minus C player yet. Do some, Is that possible for th- people to think to get subsid- like subsidized single family rentals? Is that something that's out there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So and when I say subsidized, I just mean like 
Section eight, yeah. like they're, they're, they're definitely section eight rentals. And, uh, you know, it, it, it is very much the same process. Right. Uh, and so it's really just about being able to uh, a understand uh, exactly what the section eight requirements are and how that works in, in your rental house. Uh, and then being able to sort of leverage that over a, a much larger portfolio. And again, yeah. the different geographies and other things, but they're all separate laws and such. Interesting. And now what you said that there's pro there's a uh, computer programs and technology that's combing the MLS. What are they looking for when they're, what, what makes a good SFR purchase? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're looking for the, the, the typical buy box. So uh, from an SFR standpoint, the smaller, the better. So you really, your sweet spot is three bedrooms, two bathrooms, as small as possible. So if you can get three bedrooms, two bathroom, 1200, uh, 1500 square feet, uh, you're looking at areas where your rent is going to be just for general purposes, you know, 10% of your purchase price. Um, uh, and then, you know, and then you're looking for schools that are good, not great. I mean, ultimately it's going to be a rental. Uh, and so folks will be fine with sort of the four or five, six school range. Uh, you're looking for something fairly close to retail and or employment. Uh, and so, and, and with low crime. Uh, and so, you can take um, census data, you can take um, property tax data. Uh, there's a lot of public data you can take and feed it into your system uh, along with um, Zillow rental feeds. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's fairly complex, um, but there there's enough uh, either public data or data for purchase out there where you can uh, have a computer program basically say, I only want to see these number of homes. Uh, and, and generally, you know, once you do that, then you've got, you know, a bunch of analysts sort of looking at these homes trying to figure out, OK, now that these meet our buy box, um, what do the renovations look like? Oh, oh, you know, are the rents, do the rents still make sense? Um, and because, you know, they're just checking over the things that, um, you know, potentially machines could, could miss. Yeah. Uh, but even that, I mean, frankly, uh, some of the larger SFR players are looking at um, machine learning such that. Um, they can have a machine look at pictures and tell you how much the renovations will be. Oh, so, wow. I mean, I think that there's a lot of stuff that's uh, that's coming. That's amazing. Um, all right, enough about SFR. Enough about that. What about Michael? Now, you and you've been a executive in some big, you know, famous funds out there. Now you're an entrepreneur. Uh, tell me about you. Where where did you grow up? I mean, did you did you see a house once and say, hey? One day I'm going to rent that house out, buy that and rent it out. Like, where, where did the, where, where did all this stuff start out? No, so I, I grew up on the south side of Chicago. Um, um, I, I honestly, I would say, I, I I got my love of real estate young. Uh, so uh, my dad was a police officer, and my mom uh, worked for uh, the state of Illinois, uh, and um, ultimately. Uh, it was, those are both jobs that had great pensions and, and it was very sort of working class. And one of the things that, uh, they did early on was they, um, were looking just for, for rental, for rentals, for places to sort of park their cash, uh, where they could get income. Uh, and so, um, they had a, a couple of rentals, uh, and you know, it was, it was fine. Um, but I just, I found real estate to be like the most tangible thing. Um, and so, uh, as I grew up, um, I ended up uh, eventually going to Cornell University uh, undergrad. Um, I started off doing sales and marketing at Procter Gamble. I remember this like it was yesterday. So my first job 
um, my first job was um, was in San Francisco. Oh, okay. And um, with that job came a bonus of like $5,000. And I took that bonus and I said, you know what? I want to buy a house with that, with that first initial bonus. And now this is uh, 2002. Uh, and so I took that, I took that, the, that bonus money and I bought a really small con- condo in Concord, California. <laughs> um, it was, yeah. uh, and Concord was, it was not the Concord you know today. It was pretty rough. <laughs> it was actually pretty yeah. rough, uh, back in the day, but I was excited because I just graduated college and I owned my own yeah, condo awesome. and I was, I was really stoked about that. Uh, and then, um, uh, I realized very quickly that I did not like sales and marketing uh, but to be fair, I wasn't actually even in California for that. Um, I um, I played volleyball in college, uh, and I had dreams of joining the Olympic team. And so I was oh, actually nice. most of my time playing volleyball. Um, I was sort of working this side job that was actually a real job. <laughs> but um, because uh, it was a sales job, it was basically once you sort of met your sales quota, you're done. So I would work really hard uh, the first like seven days of the mm-hmm. month and then meet the sales quota. And then I had my time. Uh, but anyway, back to the real estate portion. So, That's awesome. um, yeah. I, I, um, I, I, I took the, um, I took the, the house that I had in, in, in Concord and I lived there for a year. Once my volleyball dreams got crushed and I decided I had to be like a, a working person. <laughs> working stiff. Huh? Uh, I, yeah, I, I, I actually, I, I focused on my job and I got promoted. And I moved to Detroit and because I was sort of riding the real estate wave, I sold that condo in California and bought three houses in Detroit. Whoa. Uh, and yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I, I sort of started my my first business uh, there. Uh, and so I started my own sort of fix and flip and rental business uh, out of college. Uh, and I got I was super excited about it uh, until it became like overwhelming, until I became I was literally um, doing handyman work. I was sleeping in my basement. Mm. I was doing everything. I was like, you know, this doesn't make sense. There's got to be a better way. Uh, and so I went back to business school, focused on real estate finance, uh, and then uh, went the investment banking route. And, and so that is how I sort of got into real estate. That makes sense. So um, you you did that, and then you were in the banking route, and then you went the private equity route, and that's how you kind of learned about the SFR stuff. But um, yep. I just grew from there. I, was it a... I mean, would you recommend that to someone who's wants to get into real estate finance and maybe doesn't have the background in finance to go get your MBA or? So here's the thing. I, I think, I think ultimately the MBA is great for switching careers and giving you access. Um, I, I can safely say I learned nothing uh, in my <laughs> MBA. Program. I suppose I shouldn't say that on recorded. Well, <laughs> I was listening anyways, Mike, don't worry. I learned a ton. <laughs> But, but no, but to be honest, I think the purpose of business school is much more, uh, I would say, networking uh, and really being able to sort of immerse yourself in something. So I found that while the classroom stuff wasn't that amazing, um, the networking I did with my peers and the entrepreneurial type projects you get to do yourself sort of outside of the classroom were really valuable. Um, uh, when I was there, um, I did a project on... Um, uh, on turning a dead mall into condos. And there, there was just a number of interesting sort of real estate projects I did that sort of got my mind thinking. Uh, and then um, also sort of wrapping my mind around uh, what sort of real estate is on a larger scale. Uh, I, business school definitely helped transition that. Um, the one thing I would recommend, though, is uh, investment banking. I, I think 
there's nothing like investment banking for uh, a just a sheer training ground for uh, a knowledge base in finance period. I think uh, once you have done sort of three years in investment banking, uh, it's like doing seven years uh, in a normal career. Yeah. Uh, but more importantly, um, I mean, you literally from day one get to see how CEOs think. You get to see how businesses run. And you spend a lot of time doing grunt work, but every now and again, you get these really amazing experiences where, um, and I will recount one. Um, so for the New York folks, um, Scott Reckler uh, is a, a RXR guy, right? So um, early on, I was at, uh, I was at uh, Wachovia and we were putting together a fund for RXR and I uh, was working in their offices in Long Island. And I remember... Um, it must have been two in the morning, uh, and I was working with an analyst. and And Scott comes in the office um, at two in the morning, uh, and he um, he he sees that the lights are on. So he just he peeks in. He knows he knows we're there. He knows what we're doing, and he just stops in to talk to us. Which I thought, by the way, I thought was really cool. Um, he just stops in and talks to us, and he's like, "Wow, you know, you guys." First, 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 he says. Uh, we had we had one of his properties on the board, and we had sort of cash flows. We had the returns, and he said, "You know that IRR doesn't look right for that property." Now, this is you know one of probably thirty properties that he has, but he was sort of drilling in on this IRR at two in the morning. Uh, but then he just he just sort of like you know he, he just sort of like sat down and talked to us for like ten minutes. He was like, "Hey, you know, what do you guys sort of want to do with your careers?" This sort of thing. And I said, "You know, I I think it's really cool what you're doing. someday I'd love to like have my own fund." Um, but right now I'm just trying to, you know, just trying to grind this out. And he said, well, you know, tell me about your day. And I said, well, honestly, the car comes to get me at seven o'clock and then it drops me off at 2 a.m. And that, that's my day. <laughs> that's it. And, then I, you know, uh, and, and, and he says, well, you know, the key is um, the amount of sleep you're getting now. Just just keep that up. Uh, and then he walked me through like his day. And I was just amazed at like. You know, he talked about waking up like five in the morning, sort of reading the newspaper, getting in all the real estate financial news and then taking time to um, walk through, uh, you know, spend some time with his kids and his family. Then he goes to work. And then after that, he's got dinners. And then after that, he's got like it, it, there was just so much stuff uh, that he's fitting in in a day. And he's like, well, listen, I mean, you know, there's just not time for eight hours of sleep. And, and it was it was powerful in that it helped me understand like what work is like work is not this like eight hour thing. Like work is sort of a state of being. And it's ultimately, I think it really sort of that one small, that one small like uh, conversation really influenced sort of the, my, my mindset around sort of, sort of going to work. Yeah. Well, especially, I mean, you were in New York too. I mean, you're working for some really high caliber funds after Wells. I mean, what did, did, You've worked in New York, San Francisco, Dallas. I mean, is there a big difference in work, work cultures in all these different cities? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think the the, the the thing about New York is it's really sort of a work hard, play hard kind of place. Mm. Um, and I think the thing about San Francisco is it's just kind of a work hard. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's sort of a work hard, but uh, sort of pretend like you don't work that hard. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> And, and I think New York is just like, there's no bones about it. It's like, this is what we do. Uh, whereas in San Francisco, like they have a lot of companies have these like little like fun, like, oh, hey, you've got, you know, unlimited vacation and like these sorts of things that like make you feel like, oh, this is great. But then when the rubber meets the road, the work still has to get done. 
And so I find that people in San Francisco still work a lot, but they somehow feel like they have better balance when they... Because they're not wearing a suit, so they feel like, you know... (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, you don't wear a suit. Um, But the other thing, the funnier thing, too, I, I, I find the folks in New York to also... Uh, there's a there's a different kind of entitlement I think in San Francisco because because of the way tech is and because of the fact that there are so many young people who, who have had success so early. I find that you know we had to we literally had to move our company from Dallas from San Francisco to Dallas because we couldn't keep an analyst. Like analysts thought you know I'm going to be here for a year and then I'm Mark Zuckerberg and I'm yeah. out of here. And so uh, you know it was hard to really help people understand. Uh, a, the grind that they need to have to sort of get to those places, but then B, just to keep them because there was just so many uh, competitive folks out there sort of pulling at, at everything. Uh, so I, I don't know. I found San Francisco to be a little bit uh, more challenging. Yeah. Um, but but ultimately, I think they work hard in both those places. Now, you started out after banking and, and asset management. Um, mm-hmm. Now, not everyone does that route. I mean, as a recruiter, it's like everyone wants, oh, I want acquisitions, I want acquisitions. I mean, what do you find it was beneficial to be in the asset management side? I, mean, I see, I see the whole spectrum, so I, I know I, I think it's beneficial. But what do you, what did you find? What did you learn doing that? And do you think it really helped you in your career? So for me, it works for me because I love problem solving. Like for me, it's I love like solving puzzles, and I love I love that sort of thing. Uh, and so ultimately, for me, asset management was you have this established business that has some kind of a problem and you need to figure out how to maximize its value. Uh, and so going and thinking about all these problems and and really when I started GTIS, I think what was I think what gave me success there was I got to GTIS in 2000 and uh, 11, but really sort of just post the great financial crisis and when, when things had really taken a turn. And so we had everything from hotels to industrial to office, and they all had a variety of sort of problems. Uh, and so being able to sort of really get into the operations and say, okay, this is an interesting problem. How can we fix this here? And, and seeing it on so many different levels, um, I think ultimately made me a better executive down the line. Um, that being said, I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't discourage acquisitions or uh, dispositions or brokerage or, or all of the different aspects of real estate. But but I think that you really have to find what fits your personality. Uh, and for me, I, I found acquisitions to be boring. I, I, I think that there's a lot of people that sort of get excited about like buying stuff. But ultimately, it's like you always have a buy box. And if it falls in the buy box and you're going to buy it. And ultimately, every time, no matter what I've seen, every time you put together this great acquisition plan and then four years is going to do this and then five years are going to sell it, it never works that yeah. way. <laughs> and so you ultimately always end up needing to find someone that can sort of help you get through the operations. And so to me, I, I always found asset management to be uh, the most interesting aspect of real estate. Uh, and that's what drew me to it. So I am probably biased, but I do think it sort of then prepares you overall to sort of be a better executive um yeah. but but that again personal perspective <laughs> well they say you gotta buy well and then manage well right um and so now you're you're on your own you take you took the plunge or whatever you want to call it um i mean yeah what is what is your day consist of now what is the so, entrepreneur starting a new fund 
do during the day. So there's a complexity to it that I did not appreciate. <laughs> um, there is a there is a back office. Uh, there's an amount of back office that you have supporting you when you work for a larger company. You don't even think about <laughs> it. Um, because I have started many a fund before, uh, and I just sort of let the lawyers do the work. And I don't really think about the bills and all the other stuff because ultimately, you know, we're raising $500 million and so a million dollar legal bill, whatever. Uh, whereas now, uh, when I'm starting a $20 million fund, uh, the legal bills are, are, are much more important. They actually, you know, they're, they're a much larger influence. So, um, you know, I, I probably, when I first decided this, I probably spent the first week just like putting together the model and making sure that it all worked. Um, but then since then, I have spent probably, um, if I was to walk you through a typical day, it's um review sort of documents from legal so uh the ppm is sort of being completed as we speak uh we're working on getting all of our marketing materials approved so that we can go to market uh and um and uh you know there's a lot of legal stuff you can't do and can't say in presentations you gotta get all that stuff Mm -hmm. done uh we're uh making sure the track record that we have uh is is efficient and all that stuff and then on top of that um, so that's probably the first hour and a half of the day. Then I am going on property tours. So I'm looking at competitive properties to make sure that sort of our renovation spec and scope makes sense. And so that what we can actually go to market with actually works. Um, I'm looking at potential acquisitions. So I'm looking at, um, so I don't have this fancy algorithm, <laughs> uh, again, all the things that you take for granted. Uh, so I have my own sort of MLS feed that I get, uh, the, that I've sort of programmed. And so, you know, I get 30 or 40 houses a day. Uh, that I then are, I'm just looking through so that I can understand. So I can say, so I can say, Hey, when, when we start this fund, this is going to happen. Uh, and then, um, and then, um, after that, it's, it's, uh, it's about, uh, the networking piece. Uh, so probably the, the last half of the day is really, um, either calling or contacting folks, uh, family offices who I know, uh, that could potentially be investors taking folks out to lunch. Um, um, trying to uh, connect with folks who might be interested. Uh, oh, well, I forgot. There's actually, there's the other piece of all of the uh, corporate documents and other things. Uh, so in addition to starting the fund, in order to support the fund, you got to start your own property management company. That means you got to hire some folks. That means you got to do all this other mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, and so that's sort of the, the, the last uh, couple hours of the day. So um, it, it's not something that I think uh, that I, that I thought would be easy but I think the aspects that I thought would be hard or easy and the aspects that I thought would be easy are quite hard. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> and now are you, uh, have you made the announcement? I mean, is it like, is, are you out there? Are you public with this or are you still kind of behind the scenes waiting? So we, we have another probably two weeks or so before we get all of our documents, uh, done, done. Uh, and then we can, cause we're doing sort of a reg D, uh, offering. Uh, and so we'll be able to really sort of go, go, go public with this probably in, in the next couple of weeks. Awesome, man. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing about it. And uh, we are hearing about it, but, you know, I want to hear the name. That's what excites me the most. That's the hard, that's the hardest part, right? Picking the name. Yeah, no, this, this will be, this name will not excite you. (laughs) (laughs) Houses for rent by Michael. Yeah, yeah, that's very close. (laughs) Um, But, you know, the cool thing about the fun, though, and the cool thing about these discussions, I think, um, not only I, have I have I seen people be very um, concerned about the market in general and looking for defensive spaces, um, but I think people are also hungry for yield. And I think the problem that we're that people are facing now is uh, with interest rates so low, there's no really good safe haven. Yeah. And on top of that, the potential risk and volatility in the real estate markets have been really amped up. I think now, just given all of the data that people are seeing. 
So um, we've actually gotten a lot of good feedback on SFR as a strategy. And I think that SFR in general, not just us, but a lot of people are seeing a lot more money flow to SFR. Yeah, totally. I mean, as an individual investor myself, it's one thing I look at as well. Um, awesome, man. Well, looking forward to hearing about the uh, when the, the name drops in a couple of weeks. Um, maybe we won't <laughs> release it till the name drops so we can put it out there as the big reveal. Um, so now, are you ready for the hot seat? Yeah, sure. I don't know what the hot seat is, but I'm ready. Let's get I'm ready. On here. The hot seat is sponsored by KK Reset. KK Reset is an HR management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture, structure, and path. They do this through services which include comprehensive consultation to identify gaps and opportunities for corporate training programs. HR services and career mapping services. They've collaborated with nonprofits, startups, and academic organizations to protect them from liabilities, reduce turnover, and preserve their brands. They have also collaborated with a number of my clients on the real estate front who are not large enough to have their own in-house HR program. So they outsource it to KK Reset. KK Reset comes in, maybe sits on site a couple days a week and provides you know everything you need from an HR perspective for your, for your firm. So it's a great, uh, resource for those shops who just maybe doesn't make sense for them to have in-house HR function. Um, so please check them out at kkreset.com. K-K-R-E-S-E-T.com. You can keep your clothes on now. All right. Uh, any books you recommend, whether it's regarding real estate, business, life, anything that you, you want? Sure. So, um, you know, the 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 first book that I read when I was younger uh, is actually Rich Dad Poor Dad, um, and I think that I liked the book because of its simplicity. I think that as I've gotten a little bit older, um, the simplicity is there's a lot more nuance to it. But I think that there's some basic things that takeaways that that I liked a lot from that book. Um, the other book that I think has really transformed my life is the Ten Thousand Hours book by Malcolm Gladwell. Um, I think that a lot of people have taken that towards sports, but I think if you take that same attitude towards your career and business or life uh, in general. Uh, I think whatever you sort of really focus on and spend your time on, uh, you can see some outsized gains. And oftentimes I think people get frustrated if they don't, if they spend a certain amount of time, they don't get far enough. Um, when they just, if, if they just continue to push through, they might get a little bit further. Um, and so those are the, the two books, like just off the top that I'd say, these are great. Um, I have read some, I, I am reading some books right now, but they're not, as transitional or transformative uh, as those. Yeah, I didn't read Rich Dad Poor Dad until like my 40s. So I, I, I wish I read it 20, 30 years earlier. Uh, it, yeah, it's definitely like a mindset shift, right? Um, how about uh, podcast recommendations? Uh, so I will go across the board here. Um, so there's a fantastic podcast called Ear Hustle. Uh, it's actually about the prison system uh, and they have a number of inmates and it just gives you some an interesting insight into what it's like to be an inmate in prison. Um, it, it was just, honestly, it was just really interesting. Uh, I don't, I don't have another great descriptor. It's just, it, it's not real estate. It's just a really interesting podcast. that talks about the prison system, uh, but gives you a real perspective from, uh, an inmate's perspective. So it was really yeah, interesting. Well. Um, uh, from a, uh, from a real estate podcast standpoint, like I said, I have my own podcast yeah, yeah. That, I, that I am dropping soon that I will plug, uh, that I Is will that coming plug. out in two weeks too. Uh, it, hopefully we're going to, I'm trying to have it all come out together. So they're fun and then social media and everything just so that it's sort so of We're going to hold large. this back until it comes out. <laughs> <laughs> so we can put the name in there. Um, um, 
uh, yeah. So uh, there's that, and then um, uh, another Malcolm Gladwell. I, I am I am a fan of his, but he's got a um, he's got a revisionist history podcast. Um, that's a really good one because I think it really again it helps you look at things just from a different perspective. Um, I think that uh, one of the the challenges uh, with sort of media today in general is that. Um, it's very sort of black and white. And I think that there's a lot of grays in there that it's hard to, that you don't really get. Uh, and so um, those are the two that I'd recommend. Again, non-real estate. Uh, I, I will say that I spend a lot of my non-real estate time not doing real estate things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so, um, so when I'm working, I'm working. But when I'm not working, I kind of don't really want to hear or talk about real estate just because I think I spend so much time immersed in it. I listen to like... Soccer podcasts. That's generally what I listen to. Soccer podcasts. Like, I don't want to. I don't oh, want to think about go. recruiting or business. I just want to like, you know, <laughs> think about something else for a little bit. Um, now, what do you like to do outside of work? So um, I mentioned that I, I, I played volleyball a lot when I was younger. Um, uh, I am crossing my fingers that I'll be able to start coaching soon. Um, oh. I, I, I love spending time with kids. Uh, my kids are a little too young. I've got uh, I've got two four year olds and a six year old. Um, uh, and they're just starting soccer. And so I've done a little bit of coaching, which I, I love that a lot. I love uh, the coaching and the teaching side. Um, and then, uh, honestly, I have not had a lot of other, other time. My, my only other time has been relaxing at night with a, a cigar every, every now and again, but that, that, that is really it. Um, uh, this pandemic has really made me question, uh, the number of hobbies I have. I clearly don't have enough. <laughs> yeah. Same thing, man. The same exact thing. I'm like, wow, I got to start doing things besides working. Um, now what advice would you give to your 20 year old self? So I would say to my 20 year old self, um, give the entrepreneurship thing a chance earlier. I think the thing for me that um, has always been a, um, a holdback or it's always been sort of a mental, like if I had all of these tools, then I can do this. And now that I'm actually starting to do the entrepreneur thing, I realize I could have done this so much earlier. Like I realized that um, waiting to have every single thing, like, right. Like I wanted to check all the box, right. I wanted to be a chief operating officer. I wanted to, uh, you know, have a track record of, you know, this many deals and all that stuff. And I think that what you realize is that ultimately, um, you know, you're making a lot of money for a lot of other people and that, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. Cause you're certainly getting paid for it. Um, but, um, ultimately I think that I would have said to my younger self, uh, be more entrepreneurial faster, um, take the lessons you're learning, uh, and then, uh, be, be more, have more confidence in, uh, your ability to sort of sell yourself to the market. Uh, that, that would be the number one piece of advice nice. I do. Good one. Now I am a recruiter. And so there's people on here probably looking for advice, how to get jobs. What do you look for in hiring people, whether it's, you know, technical skill set slash just soft skills? So I'm not going to give one of those like fluffy answers. I'm going to, <laughs> I'm just going to be honest. Good. So I think that um, in this day and age, uh, you should have a very good knowledge of Excel. Like if you're working in real estate, you should understand real estate pro formas, period. I don't care what your job is, whether you're a real estate broker, whether you're asset management acquisitions, it doesn't matter. You should have a, a very strong knowledge of Excel. You should have a very strong knowledge of a real estate pro forma. You should be able to look at, 
uh, revenues, expenses, and get down to NOI. You should be able to understand exactly sort of what makes each of those things up. Uh, and then you should be able to uh, intelligently figure out sort of either what's the thing that's lagging or what's the thing that, you know, we can improve, right? And so, um, like, for example, right now I'm hiring a property manager. And ultimately, um, I have a model and I know exactly what I want my um, properties to be producing. And every single home has a model. And so I need that person to be conversant enough to be able to actually look at this and say, okay, these are the rents I'm collecting. These are the expenses. How does it match up to that model? Is that the same? Is it similar? And then I would love for them to be able to say, instead of me having to like look at that and say, hey, have you looked at these three things? For them to come to me and say, oh, hey, I've noticed that these three things are off, right? And so um, ultimately when I'm looking for someone um, uh, and, and this is on all sides of the business. I need somebody that can sort of speak a, the language of real estate, which right now is Excel and performance. And I, I don't care whether you're a maintenance man or whether you're a property manager or any of those things, you need to be able to understand, um, especially because I do think the industry, our industry is moving towards KPIs. So I think, uh, there's a lot of folks that are on key performance indicators. Uh, and so in order to you know, understand your key performance indicator, you need to be conversant in, in numbers. Uh, so that, that to me is sort of the number one thing I'm looking for. Uh, um, and you even, you know, again, you need to be technology savvy. Uh, and then I would say, you know, the other thing is obviously personable. Uh, uh, there, there is a personality piece to it. And I think ultimately, I don't think anybody would say that I'm the most personable guy, but at the end of the day, they, they know I'm honest, I'm fair, uh, and I'm going to be a, a good guy to work with. And so it's just those two things for me are sort of the ticket to the door. And one, once you got that, I can I can teach you the rest. <laughs> I think you're a personable guy. So there you go. <laughs> Michael Cook, great getting to know you better. Thanks for coming on the podcast. No problem, Chris. Thanks for having me. Much appreciated. See ya. All right, man. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the TBG Real Estate Podcast. Please visit us online at tbg-realestate.com or on Instagram at tbg.realestate. Until next time, have a great week.